Well, tonight we're uh, continuing our study of Isaiah, and we're in chapter 30 and 31. So these two chapters are very closely uh, related to one another. And so I thought I would go ahead and cover both of the chapters together in one lesson. Chapter 30 is fairly lengthy, but 31 only has nine verses in it. And uh, the theme is very closely related to chapter 30. And both of these chapters have to do with the idea of where are you going to put your trust? That's the overriding question. Are you going to trust people? Are you going to trust human wisdom, human strength? Or are you going to put your trust in God? That's really the, is the issue that Isaiah is challenging the people with in Isaiah 30 and 31. One of the commentators that I was reading was kind of given a little bit of background, historical background on the situation. And he was just talking about how really for a long time, from about 1200 to about 750 B.C., so really you know, four or five centuries, you didn't really have a strong dominant power in, in the region. And so many of, many of the smaller nations were just kind of able to do their own thing and exert their own influence in their little sphere, uh, in their little region or area where they were. But all that began to change about the mid-8th century, mid-750 B.C., because that's when Assyria started to grow and extend its influence and its borders. And so when that started to happen, people started to realize, hey, we're going to have to figure out whose side we're on here. And we're going to have to team up, you know, make some alliances because Assyria is getting really strong. And so a lot of nations did that, and Judah got kind of got caught up in that trap of uh, we got to make some military alliances so that uh, we can have some security and some strength. But instead of calling on God, they just went ahead with their own plans, and they didn't really consult the Lord. They didn't put their trust in him. They just started using their own human wisdom and trying to do what they thought was best. But Isaiah's challenging them on that. And just uh, showing them the folly of trusting in people instead of trusting in God. And so what I've done is it's almost as you read chapter 30 and then read chapter 31, they're almost kind of mirror images of each other in the way that they're laid out. And so chapter 30 begins with a rebuke of the people for trusting in Egypt instead of in God and the consequences that are going to come from that. But then the last part of the chapter, then, as we see often in Isaiah, it turns to restoration and blessing. Chapter 31 does the same thing. It starts out with a rebuke for a trusting in Egypt, but then God's going to bless in the end. And so what I've done is I've just taken the first half of chapter 30, the first part of chapter 31, and put those into my first point because they're basically covering the same thing. And then the second part of chapter 30 and the second part of chapter 31, put those in the second point, because those are basically covering the same issues. So first of all, chapter 31 through 17, and then chapter 31, 1 to 3, is Isaiah challenging the people for their foolishness in their choice of trusting in Egypt instead of trusting in the Lord. And in verses 1 and 2, Isaiah calls out some very stubborn people and says, you, you're being obstinate. You're being stubborn and refusing to listen to the Lord and going on your own path 
and doing your own thing. So in verse 1, Isaiah says, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance, but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin. And so he's essentially challenging them for failing to consult the Lord. And he says, you've been stubborn, you're obstinate, and you're just, you're, you're very self-focused and you're going to go on and do your own thing without even thinking about what the Lord might have you to do in this situation. And the alliance that he's probably referring to there is the idea of a military alliance, a political alliance between Judah and Egypt down in the south. So Assyria is exerting its influence up here in the north, and Judah wants to try to create some balance in that strength. And so they go down to Egypt to get some help from them, which is kind of ironic, isn't it? That when you think about, that's kind of uh, odd bedfellows, isn't it? Uh, Israel seeking an alliance with Egypt, where Egypt had for centuries mistreated them when they were in bondage down there as slaves. But now they're going back to them saying, help us be our partner in this. And Isaiah says, in doing this and not consulting the Lord, these are your plans, not mine. He says, you're adding sin upon sin. And what that previous sin is, he doesn't specify. I mean, it could be just there are other areas of rebellion, of apostasy, and idolatry, but he doesn't specify. He just leaves it generic, meaning you're just continuing to pile up the sins and the ways in which you're, you're refusing to listen to the word of the Lord. And so you're going down to Egypt, but you haven't consulted me. You're looking for help to Pharaoh's protection and to Egypt as shade for refuge. So that's where you're going. You're looking for help and protection for them to be your covering, but you should have come to me. You should have consulted me. What the Lord is saying through Isaiah. So stubborn people doing their own thing. And but then in verses three through seven, the Lord is going to reveal to them through Isaiah that this plan is totally it's a fool's errand. It's 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 going to end up being useless, totally in vain. Because the help that you're seeking from Egypt, in the end, they're going to be of no help to you, no usefulness at all. Verse 3, he said, but Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Meaning this this plan that you think is great is going to end up bringing you shame. It's going to end up in ruin because you didn't consult me. You just decided to do your own thing and it's going to come around to bite you in the end. You're going to end up in shame and disgrace. Though they have officials in Zoan and their envoys have arrived in Hanes. And basically the idea here is that the Judah's already made up their mind what they're going to do. So they haven't consulted the Lord at all. They haven't consulted Isaiah or the prophets. They've just, they've already made up their mind and they've already sent the messengers on the way to make this agreement. And he says, basically what Isaiah is saying in verse four is they haven't even fully gotten all the way to Egypt yet. They're just on the way. And already this plan is useless. It's already in vain. Everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them. And what he means there is the everyone are the people of Judah. 
And they're going to be put to shame because of a people useless to them, meaning the Egyptians. This help that they're going to seek from Egypt, it's going to be useless in the end. And they're going to be full of shame because they went this route, not seeking the Lord. And so these, the Egyptians, they bring neither help nor advantage, but only shame and disgrace. So this plan is going to mean nothing. It's going to be useless to you. A prophecy concerning the animals of the Negev. The Negev is kind of a, a term you see often in Scripture. It is a region south of Israel, kind of in this no man's land between Israel and Egypt. And it's, it, sometimes it's translated as the wilderness or the desert. The Hebrew word is Negev. And the idea is this just kind of barren, open space between Israel and Egypt. And he says, the animals of the Negev, it's a, it's a land of hardship and distress. It's a land of danger with lions and lionesses, of adders and darting snakes. So you're, basically, you're making this treacherous journey through this dangerous and barren land between Israel and Egypt. You're heading down there and you're bringing your messengers down there and you're going through this, you're going through this dangerous journey. And you've got these animals carrying, you know, the tribute, the money that you're going to bring to the Egyptians for this alliance that you're making. But it's all for nothing. It's all going to end up being unprofitable in the end. And so the envoys are carrying their riches on donkeys' backs, their treasures and the humps of camels to that unprofitable nation, Egypt. This is going to be of no help to you. Verse 7, to Egypt, whose help is utterly useless. Therefore, I call her Rahab, the do-nothing. And what's interesting is, is, depending on the translations that you look at here, you, you're going to see a little bit different way of handling verse number seven, because it's, it's a little bit difficult in Hebrew. But Rahab is, is in the scriptures, sometimes a reference to a particular a beast or a dragon. For example, in Isaiah 51, 9 through 10, Rahab is the name given to a dragon, which Ezekiel particularly associated with Egypt. So, and here, basically what Isaiah is saying is, is this land of Egypt is, they're, they're this detestable monster, but also they're going to end up being completely useless to you. So they're the do-nothing. They're, they're going to be of no use to you. And so basically Isaiah is saying this monster is really a toothless monster. No bite, no help to you whatsoever. And then Isaiah calls them out in verses 8 through 11 for their spiritual blindness and their deafness. And, and, and the issue here is the word of God. Verses 8 through 11 is the word of God. What do you do with the word of God? How do you respond to it? And Isaiah is saying to them, you have been stubborn, you've been hard-hearted, and basically you've turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to the word of God. And you've refused to listen. So God says to Isaiah, go now and write it on a tablet for them. Inscribe it on a scroll that for the days to come, it may be an everlasting witness. And the idea is take the words that I'm giving you and turn them into a more permanent record. 
that is more official and that will be a perpetual reminder of the fact that they had these words, they had this record, and they refused to listen to it. And this could very well even have a reference to what Isaiah is writing in portions of the book of Isaiah. So write this down, make it, make it a permanent record. And in essence, it will become a witness against them in the days to come because they had the word and they refused it. So verse nine, for these are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, which is another name for a visionary or a prophet, no more visions and to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things, prophesy illusions. And this is what we see often in the Old Testament, especially when Israel or Judah were in rebellion against the Lord, is they would not listen to the true prophets of God. They would not listen to Elijah or Elisha. They're not listening to Isaiah. Instead, what you read in the book of Kings especially is the, the kings would associate and gather around them prophets who would tell them what they wanted to hear. So we don't really want to hear the word of the Lord anymore. Just tell us good things. Tell us what we want to hear, basically. So even if it's a lie, even if it's an illusion, we want to hear good things. Just tell us what we want to hear. Leave this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. That's kind of the people's response to the true prophets. Quit reminding us about what the Lord is telling us. And about the destruction and the danger that is coming because we've refused the Lord. No, just tell us the good stuff, what we want to hear. So verses 8 through 11, just a, a refusal to listen to the word of the Lord. And almost when the good prophets were telling them what the Lord was really saying, they were putting their hands over their ears and covering their eyes because they didn't want to see it and hear it. But there's consequences for that. So verses 12 through 17 lays out the consequences of their stubbornness of going down to Egypt, doing their own thing, coming up with their own plans, refusing to listen to the Lord. There's consequences. So verse 12, therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression and depended on deceit. And there I, I take it to mean that Egypt are the oppressors. So you're going to even whether former oppressors, like when you were in slavery down there, or even what they're going to be in your relationship with them. They're an oppressive people. They're a deceitful people. They're not going to keep the deal that, that you're making with them. It's going to be of no use to you. But you've rejected my word, and you've gone on down here to make this deal with them. So this sin will become for you like a high wall cracked and bulging that collapses suddenly in an instant. So it's a very vivid word picture of almost like a, a wall of a city that is intended for protection, but it's, it's cracking and it's breaking down. Or you can even imagine like a, a, a dam, a wall in which it starts to crack and it starts to leak. And then all of a sudden that dam can burst forth and just the whole wall comes crumbling down. That's the image here of, of the judgment that's going to roll over Judah because of their rebellion to the Lord. 
It will break, that is this wall, still continuing the word picture. This wall will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces, not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. In other words, it's going to be broken into such small pieces that not even the pieces will be good for anything. Completely shattered. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. This verse is the heart of chapter 30 and 31. This is really fundamentally what the message is about. If you had trusted in the Lord, there would be salvation. In repentance and rest, meaning resting in the Lord, trusting in him, waiting patiently for the Lord. If you had trusted him, if you had turned from your sin, if you just waited on the Lord, there would be salvation. There would be consolation. There would be strength. But you stubbornly refused it. So that is, that's the message of these chapters. You refuse to listen to the word of the Lord. You said, no, we will flee on horses. The idea probably there is of seeking the help of Egypt, seeking their strength, their army, their horses, their chariots, even perhaps even of going down to them and getting their help. And so the Lord turns it around on them and says, yes, but because you sought it this way, Now you're going to be the ones fleeing. We're going to be swift on horses. God's going to say, no, I'm going to turn it around now. Now your enemies are going to be swift. So you you went about it your own way. And so now I'm going to bring the opposite on you of what you sought for. And the consequences are going to come rolling over you. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountain's hop like a banner on a hill. And I think just the picture here is of complete retreat and of fear in the face of battle that one person can turn away a thousand and five people can send your whole army running away to the point where all you have left is you don't have a gathered army anymore. All you have left is the standard or the the banner where the army was supposed to be. Just everyone has fled and has deserted. So God's going to bring judgment. The wall that you were looking for, this protection that you were looking for from Egypt, that wall is going to crack and crumble. And it's going to be of no use to you. And you're going to run away fleeing, looking for help. And then in chapter 31, first three verses of chapter 31, he continues this same theme of the foolishness of trusting in Egypt. And he frames it in the contrast between man and God between man who is mortal and God who is immortal, that which is frail versus that which is mighty. So the foolishness of trusting and frailty. In verse 1, he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. So you're looking for help from human things, from mighty armies, from chariots and horses. Yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against that wicked nation, against those who help 
evildoers. And what I understand here in verse 2 is that this is the Lord who is wise. This is the Lord who is able to bring disaster. And verse 3 clarifies it because he says, I'm going to bring disaster on basically the helper and the helpee. So you went to Egypt looking for help. I'm going to bring disaster on the helper, Egypt. But also I'm going to bring disaster on you because you're linked to them. The one who helps and the one who is being helped will both have the same fate. So the Egyptians are mere mortals and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, those who help will stumble. Those who are helped will fall and all will perish together. So foolishness. Trusting in man instead of trusting in God. Trusting in your own plans instead of trusting in the wisdom of the Lord. And Isaiah says there are going to be consequences for that. And yet, amazingly enough, the Lord is still gracious, isn't he? He's still gracious. Even in the midst of this rebellion and this foolishness, Isaiah holds out to them the hope of salvation and of the blessings of trusting in the Lord. That if you will turn to him in repentance and trust him, his blessings will flow down upon you and he'll be gracious to you. In verses 18 through 22 of chapter 30, we see the Lord's amazing grace to the repentant. The Lord's amazing grace to the repentant. And when you think about the context of the first 17 verses and Israel doing whatever it wanted to do, and saying, we don't really want to hear from the Holy One of Israel. We don't want to hear the words of the Lord. Prophets just tell us something that we want to hear. And yet, even after all of that stubborn rejection, Isaiah says from the Lord, he is still gracious and willing to help you. So yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Now, during this time, you have to remember that, that even though there's a, you know, on the whole, Judah is in apostasy and rebelling against the Lord. Still, there's always a remnant, isn't there? There's always a remnant. And so even among this remnant, Isaiah is saying, you're the truly blessed ones, the ones who wait on the Lord, the ones who trust in him. But even to those who have rebelled, Isaiah holds out the hope of God being gracious to them. People of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious he will be when you cry for help. As soon as he hears, he will answer you. That is, that's an amazing description of the Lord. Just how gracious and merciful he is. In spite of all this rebellion and refusing to hear what Isaiah was telling them, Isaiah says, if you'll turn and call, God will answer. Isn't that salvation? Isn't that the gospel that even though we could live a life of turning our, our, our back against God and shaking our fist at God and doing our own thing and going our own way, yet the Lord is gracious to those who call on him and, and seek his salvation. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes, you will see them. And what I see this as is I see this going back to verses 8 through 11 when the people refuse to listen to the prophets, when they refuse to listen to the true words of the Lord. And Isaiah is telling them, 
God's bringing you through this difficult time, times of adversity, times of weeping, but he's doing this so that you will turn and repent and then you can experience his gracious blessing. And when you experience his gracious blessing, then your eyes will be opened and your ears will be opened and your teachers will be there right in front of you. They won't, they won't be hidden anymore. The prophets, you'll, you'll hear the prophets and you'll see the prophets and you'll listen to their, their messages. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. In other words, if you turn to the Lord for guidance, he will guide you. If you turn to him for direction, you'll receive his direction. And that's the very issue, isn't it? Is they were seeking direction from their own counsel. They were seeking help from Egypt. They weren't going to the Lord for direction. But Isaiah is saying, if you'll turn and call on him, you'll have his direction. You'll have his guidance. Then you will desecrate your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, away with you. So along with God's gracious blessings being poured out is accompanying repentance. That, that this cry to the Lord is a, a true cry that arises out of a graciously transformed heart that seeks to change and turn from their wicked ways. And And what they had made with their own hands, these idols, these images of silver and gold, what they had bowed down to and worshipped, what they had put their trust in, Isaiah says in a very vivid way, they'll be like menstrual claws that are gross and disgusting that you throw out. It's a very vivid word picture, isn't it? But he's making a very sharp contrast between their previous worshipping of them to now their disgust of them. And casting them out. That's true repentance and turning from them. The Lord's bountiful blessings to the bruised and the broken. So God pours out his grace on the repentant. Those who have been bruised and broken, God showers his blessings upon them. Verse 23, he will also send you rain for the seed that you sow in the ground. The food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful In that day, your cattle will graze in broad meadows. The oxen and donkeys that work the soil will eat fodder and mash spread out with fork and shovel. In the day of great slaughter, when the towers fall, streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill. In other words, God's blessings poured out on you. Abundant rain, crops, that will grow animals that will feed streams of blessing that will flow in the day that the Lord brings his judgment on your enemies. There is blessing to you. The moon will shine like the sun and the sunlight will be seven times brighter like the light of seven full days. When the Lord binds up the bruises of his people and heals the wounds that he inflicted. And I take the first part of verse 26 to be, just very poetic imagery that and and speaking of the, the incredible blessings that will flow to the people when they turn to the Lord, it will be as if the moon is as bright as the sun. It will be as is, as if the sun is seven times brighter. In other words, great light, great prosperity, great blessing to those who turn to the Lord. 
And even though he is the one who brought you through these difficult times and chastised you, and he's the one that bruised you, he will also be the one who heals your wounds when you turn to him in repentance. Then at the end of chapter 30, we see the Lord's majestic glory in salvation through judgment. And I don't know if in Isaiah or in any of the prophets, there is as tight of a connection between salvation and judgment, as you see in these verses. And the idea here is, and we've seen it before, is that when God is showing blessing to his people, he is judging their enemies. And so it's two sides of the same coin. And and they're closely bound up together in, in this passage. And not only is God giving blessing to you while bringing judgment here, but he's also glorified in that. He receives glory in both the giving of salvation and in the giving of judgment to those who deserve it. So verse 27 says, see, the name of the Lord comes from afar. Pay attention to this when you're reading the Old Testament. And notice times like this where the name of the Lord is spoken of in this very uh, personified way. As if the name is the Lord himself, as if the name is his presence. For example, you can see this in first Kings eight, when Solomon is dedicating the temple. And in that passage, it says, and there the name of the Lord will come to dwell. And so it's almost as if his name has become personified as his very presence. So the name of the Lord comes from afar with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath and his tongue is a consuming fire. Very powerful description, isn't it? This is the holy indignation, the holy wrath of the Lord in judgment on his enemies. His breath is like a rushing torrent rising up to the neck. That is like floodwaters rushing down and and almost drowning you. He shakes the nations in the sieve of destruction. He places in the jaws of the peoples a bit that leads them astray. So verse 28 makes very clear that this judgment now is not coming for Judah. This judgment is coming to the nations. This judgment is coming on their enemies, on the wicked, those who have turned from the Lord. So God's judgment is coming on them. And and even you see here the sovereignty of the Lord in that, He places a bit in their mouths and he leads them. He guides them to their own ruin. God is sovereign over the nations. And you will sing as on the night you celebrate a holy festival. Your hearts will rejoice as when people playing pipes go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. See that quick transition In verse 28, to the Lord's judgment raining down, he's going to shake the nations in the sieve of his judgment. Very next verse, and that's going to be your joy and your celebration. Isn't that amazing just how closely that is bound up in the judgment of the nations and the salvation of God's people resulting in joy? You're going to go and you're going to sing. You're going to play pipes. You're going to be singing and rejoicing like a a joyful procession up to Mount Zion, up to the mountain of the Lord. The Lord will cause people to hear his majestic voice and will make them see his arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire with cloudburst, 
thunderstorm and hail. Again, here's judgment again. So Israel, you're going to rejoice going up to Mount Zion in praise. And people are going to see his hand of judgment coming down. And notice in verse 30 that the way God is going to deal with, his, with Judah's enemies is by his own power. He references acts of nature, doesn't he? Lightning, fire, hailstorm, thunderstorm. God is going to accomplish this by his own power. The voice of the Lord will shatter Assyria. With his rod, he will strike them down. Here we get specific, don't we? Here's specifically where his judgment is coming. So think, think about it now. Who, what is the problem for Judah? It's the strength of Assyria, isn't it? Where did they go for help? They went to Egypt for help. God says, you should have trusted me. Why should you have trusted me? Because here's what I can do to Assyria. And here's what I will do to Assyria. I will judge them and I will save you, but you've got to turn to me and trust in me. And you will strike Assyria down. Now, here is where you see maybe the tightest link of salvation and judgment, maybe in all of scripture. Every stroke the Lord lays on them with his punishing club will be to the music of timbrels and harps as he fights them in battle with the blows of his arm. Think about that. God bringing his rod of judgment on Assyria to the rhythm, to the beat of the music that you're singing on the way up to Jerusalem. That's, that's incredible, isn't it? Salvation and judgment. As I judge your enemies and show my power, that's going to be to the same cadence of your songs of joy and rejoicing. Topheth has long been prepared. It has been made ready for the king. Its fire pit has been made deep and wide with an abundance of fire and wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of burning sulfur, sets it ablaze. This is the last statement in chapter 30 against Assyria. This is, this is, the, this is like the exclamation point on God's rod of judgment on Assyria. Now, you probably don't know, I didn't know until I looked it up, what in the world is Topheth, Right? Do a, do a cross-link search on this. We're not going to look at it tonight. But you probably, if you have a, a study Bible or even a reference Bible, you probably have a reference maybe to 2 Kings, to Topheth, and also Jeremiah 7. And if you go and look at both of those places in 2 Kings, I think it's chapter 20, Jeremiah 7, here's what you will learn about Topheth. It is a place in the valley of Bar Hinnom, or Ben Hinnom. And this is the place where the people of Israel would offer their children as sacrifices to Molech in the fire. When Israel was worshiping Baal, the false Canaanite gods, or, or Molech, the, face, the false gods, part of those false forms of worship was human sacrifice and child sacrifice. And 2 Kings specifically mentions King Josiah 
desecrating this place and tearing it down, making it no longer a sacred place for the worship of Molech. But this is the place where apostate, rebellious parents would sacrifice their children to these false gods. And what is Isaiah saying here? That place is now ready to receive the king of Assyria. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? The king of Assyria, the king who worships this false god and who influences people to cast their children into this place, that's where the king of Assyria is going to end up. That's a very powerful image. Burning sulfur is the same uh, reference that we get from Genesis 19 in Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone. It's a place of God's judgment coming to Assyria. And then verses 4 through 9, we see the Lord's mighty deliverance of his repentant people. Basically, verses 4 through 9 pictures the Lord as a warrior in defending and fighting for his people against Assyria. This is what the Lord says to me. As a lion growls, a great lion over its prey, and though a whole band of shepherds is called together against it, it is not frightened by their shouts or disturbed by their clamor. So the Lord Almighty will come down to do battle on Mount Zion and on its heights. God is pictured as a lion who is not scared off by anything. No matter how big an army comes, just like no matter how big a group of shepherds comes to chase off a lion, the lion's not scared. The lion's still going to eat his prey. So also is the Lord, when he comes to judge Assyria, he's not going to be frightened away by anything. He's the mighty Lord. Like birds hovering overhead, the Lord Almighty will shield Jerusalem. He will shield it and deliver it. He will pass over it and will rescue it. Here the idea is probably the idea of birds hovering and and that being like a covering over the top of Jerusalem, being its protection. Even perhaps even the, the image of wings of a mother bird protecting the young. The Lord is shielding, watching over his people. Return, you Israelites, to the one that you have so greatly revolted against. So you have been guilty of an incredible Betrayal, now turn. Come back to the Lord in repentance. For in that day, every one of you will reject the idols of silver and gold that your sinful hands have made. So full repentance, true repentance, turning from idolatry. And Assyria will fall by no human sword. A sword not of mortals will devour them. They will flee before the sword and their young men will be put to forced labor. Notice, Assyria is going to be defeated, but not by a human sword. Remember what I mentioned earlier in chapter 30? Hailstorm and lightning and thunderstorms. This is the Lord's doing. This is is going to be clearly evident that the Lord is the victor over Assyria. Their stronghold will fall because of terror. At the sight of the battle standard, their commanders will panic, declares the Lord whose fire is in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. And I think the idea there is that the holy wrath of God in defense of his people will come out from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion, and devour his foes. And if you want the fulfillment of this prophecy, just read a little bit later in Isaiah, because we're going to get to it in chapter 36, 37, 38, and 39. 
because the exact historical event that this is probably referring to is when Assyria surrounded Jerusalem with Sennacherib as the commander. And you know what God did? The people were in panic. But God sent away Sennacherib and his army because he defeated them with a mighty host of angels. He wiped out fast majority of their army and sent them away. It was the Lord's doing, right? They were defeated by sword, but not a human sword. They were defeated by the Lord. So stop putting your trust in Egypt. Trust the Lord because he is quite capable of defending you. And he will, he will display that in the days of Hezekiah when Sennacherib is repelled and his army of Assyria repelled. Assyria surrounds Jerusalem, but they never take it. They never take it. The Lord protects them. And that's the fulfillment of Isaiah's words. He is a true prophet because his words came true, came to fulfillment. And so I was just thinking about, you know, there's so many things that we could think about in terms of our own application with this. But even if we just take the overriding thought, the overriding theme of these whole, both of these chapters, and that is our tendency to trust ourselves and our tendency to put our trust in human things human ingenuity, human technology, human alliances, human friendships, our own abilities, our own talents, our own wealth. We have, the, we have the tendency to trust ourselves, to depend on ourselves. And, you know, when, when we get that diagnosis of cancer, is our first thought praying to the Lord? Or is our first thought, I need to make sure I find a good doctor? not saying it's wrong to find a doctor. I'm not saying that that trusting the Lord is against all human means. But where do we go first? Who do we trust? Who's our ultimate trust in? And this passage is teaching us that we need to depend on the Lord. You know, when we think about our nation and just how deeply divided we are and the trouble that I think is coming toward our nation in the not too far off future, what are we trusting in? Are we trusting in the voting booth? Are we trusting in elected officials? Are we trusting in Congress? Are we trusting in judges? I think Isaiah 30 and 31 teaches us all those things are going to fail you. Trust the Lord. When when financial disaster strikes, do you trust your ability to go out and work and get a job? Do you trust, you know, in government to support you? What do you trust in? And the overriding message here is trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. He is fully capable of defending his people, of providing for his people, of guiding his people. And that's what Isaiah was trying to to teach these people. And if they would just turn and repent, the Lord's blessings would shower down upon them. But much of, a lot of times we're like these Israelites. Much of our world is like these Israelites. We just want to go our own way. But salvation and blessing is found in the Lord.